When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. And now, on to today's show. All right, folks. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and with me today is Cynthia Covey-Haller. Cynthia, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Earl. I'm thrilled to be on your show. Oh yeah, I'm I'm excited to get into this. This is going to be a, a great uh, great conversation. I just know it. And and folks, you probably um, maybe heard a familiar name in there, Covey. Uh, just had Stephen M. R. Covey on a few episodes ago, and during that conversation, uh, at the end of it, he says, "Hey, um, you know, my my family uh, has got a, another book coming out." And I'm going to spoil the story here. I'm going to let Cynthia tell the story. But when you hear what this book is about and uh, the, the story behind it and the content of it, you're going to want to go out and grab a copy. But what I want you to know about Cynthia right now, uh, Cynthia is an author, teacher, and speaker. And she has contributed to several books, including The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, The Six Most Important Decisions You'll Ever Make, and A Third Alternative by Stephen R. Covey, and uh, she does come from the the hallowed Covey family. Um, so, Cynthia, with all of that experience, all that wealth of knowledge that you grew up, that you possess, that your family possesses, I'm really excited to hear how you answer the question where I start off all of my guests. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? Well, Earl, I, I love the name of your show, Responsible Leadership, because um, I think that's what we need today. And um, I, I just came into my mind that um, my father um, always had a vision of, you know, how we have the Statue of Liberty in the East Coast of the United States. He was involved in a project for a while, and I think it got, they didn't raise enough money or something, called the Statue of Responsibility. And he wanted that on the West Coast in California. And uh, to in this in this book that we'll discuss, 
Um, responsible leadership means um, being a, a mentor, believing in another's worth and potential, and commu- communicating that so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. Mm. So that, that, that was my father's best definition of leadership is communicating that uh, the person that you're trying to lead and maybe mentor, communicating their worth and potential um, so clearly to them that they could finally see it in themselves. Because a lot of times, you know, we don't believe in ourselves, but someone else does and we can go off of that. And that is to me, true leadership. Oh, I, I love that. I love that a lot. And, you know, cause it's, it's something, you know, I tell folks when I start working with them, uh, coaching, I said, you know, there's going to come a point in this relationship where you absolutely despise me. <laughs> and that point, that point's going to be when the light bulb goes off and you realize that everything that I've helped you achieve, you already had. I just helped you unlock it. Right. Um, and, 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 and I, I love that because I think that is so true, right? Is, is we have so much potential locked away in us that, that we just need somebody. Most of the time we need somebody to come through and help us realize how awesome we really are. Don't we? It's, it's true. If you were, if I were to ask you this Earl and you could, all your listeners could ask themselves this question, um, who believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself when you were growing up? Can you pinpoint, Earl, um, here I'm, I'm throwing it back to you. <laughs> Can you pinpoint a person in your life who saw your worth and potential and communicated that to you when maybe you didn't see it yourself? Oh, absolutely. And, and I've talked about him quite a bit on this show. And it, that was hands down uh, my grandfather, Earl Marion Harris. Um, he he was he's the reason I'm I don't live in my small town that I grew up in when most of my friends do. And I don't say that necessarily as a negative way. My hometown, Irwin, Tennessee, it's a great place to live. Um, you know, but there just wasn't a lot of opportunity there. And my grandfather was always the one who's like, look, you're bent for more. You're going to do more. When you get out of here, when I joined the Marines, he said, well, I want you to go make something out of yourself and never look back, right. go forward. And so, yeah, he, he was the one, my grandfather, Earl Harris, love the man, God rest his soul. That, that's awesome. And I think everybody has somebody they can think of that, you know, really, really inspired them and believed in them. So then we, we have to ask ourselves, so are, are we doing the same thing for someone else? Yeah. Who are we, who are we being a mentor to? And it could be um, a grandchild that's struggling, maybe with an addiction or with um, some special needs or, or problems. Maybe we have um, a son or daughter that's going through a divorce, or maybe we're facing a, a, a divorce or a relationship estrangement. Um, you know, what, what, what kind of person um, can look around them and just see who can I, who can I mentor? Who can I be an example and a leader to, to help them realize that they have greatness in them and just to try to help them unlock it. Because like you said, Earl, when you're doing the coaching, you know, you just, you're just kind of showing them something that they already had inside, but, but sometimes it takes another person to point that out and to, to bring that out in them. So I think that's a, our great challenge is, as trying to be leaders in our families, in our business, um, with relationships at work, with people that are struggling is, is see yourself as that mentor and that person that could inspire another. Mm. 
I love that. And and that's a lot of what, you know, this this book is about, what a lot of the Covey family's work has really been about. Um, you, you all are, I, t- I told Stephen this, but you all are just an amazing family. The, the, the products you put out, the messages you all have put out, the, the work you have done to make the world a better place, it's just amazing. And this book, I love the title and I love the, the subtitle. So listeners, if you haven't figured it out yet, the book that we're talking about is is the the new book by Cynthia Covey Haller and Stephen R. Covey. And yes, you heard that right, Stephen R. Covey. Um, and it's titled, Live Life in Crescendo, Your Most Important Work is Always Ahead of You. And I love the fact that you uh, italicized always <laughs> to emphasize that because I believe that that's true. But there's a deep story behind the this book just the conceptualizing and and it becoming something that's actually printed right right and the story began clear back in 2008 a long time ago um that my i was talking with my dad about he was always um he was always forward thinking and he was always working on several different projects and i i spoke to him about one of them um this this live life from crescendo idea because this was his personal mission statement the last 10 years of his life. And I think that he adopted that because it really bothered him that people would say when he'd be out speaking or different things, they'd say, well, uh, listen, you, you know, you're, you're 65, you're 72 or whatever. You, you're going to retire anytime soon. <laughs> and, and he just thought, why would I, you know, I, I've got, I still have passion for my work. I feel like I am making a contribution. I still have good health to be able to deliver this. And I still have a lot of great ideas to to come. So I no, I'm not going to retire. And so he made this his personal mission statement, live life from crescendo. And I'll explain about the, the musical symbol of that in a minute. But it kind of started because I foolishly asked my dad one day, Hey, are you going to write anything as as good as and effective as the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? And <laughs> I think that kind of he's, he kind of said, "Oh, that offends me." <laughs> he said, "Why do why do I why do I get up every day, you know, to write and to speak? I mean, do you think everything that I have of value was in the Seven Habits that I wrote in 1989? <laughs> and right. it still has a lot of relevance. It's been out 33 years." Um, and, and is still selling strongly, still a bestseller, um, 40 million copies. So obviously those principles, he always said they're bedrock principles, foundational, true North principles that are, that are common to every culture and people. But he said, I still have other things to contribute. And, um, and you can, now that you asked me that, you can help with one of them. <laughs> and so I, I showed a lot of interest in this live life from Crescendo And so he asked me if I would basically write the book, if I would take his ideas, interview him, which I did for a few years. And um, he wanted a lot of practical stories in it, kind of different from some of his other books, not as much theory, just, um, uh, just stories around building the crescendo mentality in your life. And he wanted me to find examples of people who exemplified living in crescendo. And what I mean by that, Earl, is that if you, if you, are you musical at all? Uh, 
not that much. <laughs> I have well, a vague idea of what a crescendo is, yeah. but I'm sure you can do much well, better job explaining well, it. Our family's not really musical either, except for my mom. So people wonder why why this was chosen, but it was because of my dad's mission statement. But a crescendo, everyone knows what a crescendo is when you go to a concert or a symphony. And a crescendo, the sign of it starts at a point and then stretches, the lines stretch out in, in, in wide directions and they don't touch again. And a crescendo builds in strength and power, in majesty, in, in you know, it, it is powerful. And when you hear a crescendo, it's, it's amazing in a concert. And um, the same way with uh, living your life in crescendo, that you keep learning, keep growing, keep stretching. You may have to redefine yourself. You may have to start over, but you're increasing in power and influence with other people and in your life. And the opposite of crescendo, the opposite sign is called diminuendo. And that's another musical sign that the lines are the two lines are, are outward and they come together to a point and the music slows and it pauses and it's, and it eventually fades away and completely stops. And so this book has examples of people who are living what we call the crescendo mentality um, that they are taking the setbacks and the things that life throws at you and, and all the different ages and stages and having the, the mentality, which is kind of like a pair of glasses you put on, a, a paradigm that you look through of, no, I'm still going to keep, I'm still going to keep learning. I'm going to, I'm going to still um, reinvent myself. I'm going to still keep contributing throughout my life, despite what comes at me, despite setbacks and failures and successes. I'm going to keep living in crescendo by expanding my circle of influence and expanding uh, my contributions in others' lives. And so that's kind of the background and the main idea of the the musical symbols in the book. Yeah, no, and, and I love that iconography. I mean, uh, I, again, you asked me about how musical I was. I'd never heard the term uh, diminuendo uh, yeah. until reading this. And, and it makes so much sense because I was just chatting uh, my, my previous guest, um, uh, Dr. Christopher uh, uh, Kalinda, um, he's a veteran, and we were talking about the veteran suicide epidemic, yeah. and we were talking about some of these things, or what, what what you just said kind of really stuck with me, and is is one of the chapters, the first chapter in the book, uh, life is a mission, not a career, and it's part one, the midlife struggle, and what what he and I were talking about was, you know, we've got this kind of perfect storm for a lot of our veterans right now, they're kind of um, hitting midlife crisis. They're dealing with some of the, the post-traumatic stress uh, issues that are going on. Uh, you know, thanks to the opioid epidemic, some of these folks are still uh, addicted to opioids or coming down off of it. And as you were talking about that, I can see, you know, there's this, there is this sharp kind of contrast of, of veterans living in crescendo, starting businesses, becoming entrepreneurs, doing really well for themselves, but then that diminuendo piece where you're talking about uh, where the lines start coming together. And, and sadly, in that community, when those lines come together, that pause, that end you're talking about, it's not uh, figurative. It's it's literal. Right. The, these right. folks are yeah. uh, choosing to take their life and, and end it. And and so, again, I think that's one of the things the iconography really, uh, really stuck with me when you're saying that, because 
if, if we can get one thing out of this, we want everybody living in crescendo. But if I could get more of my fellow veterans to, to get in that crescendo mindset, man, I think we could make a big dent in that 22 a day suicide epidemic number. So that, that uh, breaks my heart that um, our veterans, our most valued citizens who have given so much for our country and sacrificed for us and and to, to feel like they, they don't have anything to live for. And um, they, they do, you know, they have, they, we need to be more supportive of them and, and value their, their contributions and speak about them more. And we need to, if anyone knows veterans, reach out to them and, and tell them that, you know, you still have important things to contribute. This, you know, they had this trauma in war that has affected their lives so much. And some of it, is is some issues of depression, which you do need to be treated, you know, medically with medication and things because it causes such a distortion in your thinking. But the second, the subtitle of the book, your most important work is always ahead of you. And like you said, emphasize always in italics because whatever is in front of you is your most important work. It's still to come to create and to contribute and uh, people that feel like I don't have, you know, I, I haven't been very successful in my midlife and maybe I have a failed marriage or my business hasn't go, gone right or maybe I'm not where I thought I would be. We, you need, we need to step back and realize that you have a choice right here to keep, um, to keep on with this type of thinking and give into it and, and, and live in diminuendo or to decide, no, I'm going to take control of my life. I'm, I'm responsible. I can't, I can't help what happened to me, but I can, I can help going forward. I can choose. I do have a choice to choose how to respond and react to it. And Earl, if you don't mind, I'll tell a, a story. It's one of my favorite stories in the book about, about a man that named Anthony Ray Hinton in the book that, um, that was living in, um, in Alabama in near Bir- Birmingham. And he was falsely accused of killing two people that he did not, he did not commit these murders. He was in a lockdown facility at work 15 miles away when these crimes were committed. And they had a lot of pressure to find a, to find um, somebody who had, who had done these crimes. And he just, he got framed. He got nailed um, partially a racial uh, discrimination and that he was poor and didn't have a good defense and anyway, he was a good person and believed, he knew he was innocent. So he believed in the legal system and trusted that, that things would be made right. Well, you know, the prosecution didn't care about truth and they, um, they framed him and he ends up in, in death row, condemned, you know, spend the rest of his life, but, but to lose his life on death row in, in Birmingham. And he is just so distraught. And, you know, his life interrupted for something he did not do. And he comes into his jail cell and he throws his Bible under his bed and just kind of gives up. He shuts down. He's living in diminuendo. He doesn't, he decided if they did this to me, I, I'm, I'm giving nothing back. And he de- decides that he will not speak one word. He doesn't speak for three years to his guards, to the fellow inmates on death row, to anyone except for uh, visitors that he receives once a week. He doesn't say anything. He's living in diminuendo and he's miserable and he has no power, no influence, no light in his life. And one night at two in the morning, 
he hears as um, in next in the cell next to him an inmate just sobbing and just really at the at his the end of his rope and begging for someone to help him to give him some comfort or something and and something awakens in Ray the com- compassion that he's always had because he was a good person and and had good values raised like that by his mother um, to believe in helping others and they said he said. He said, I realized that he said, this just rocked me. I realized I can't control that I'm on death row right now, but I can't, but I can choose to either live in hate with hate and despair, or I can choose love and compassion. And he decided to choose to choose compassion and reached out and spoke to this man and comforted him, found out that his mother had just passed away and he just found out. And this this inmate was devastated. And Ray spent the next the rest of the night uh, speaking, comforting, helping this this poor man that was struggling and got him talking about his mother and what he loved about her and laughing about funny things that happened during his childhood. And he realized, he said, this this just rocked me that I do have some choices. They may be very limited, but I on death row, I still have choices. And love and hope was going to be a choice for him. And so for the next, you know, uh, 14 years, I mean, he well, he was he ultimately spent uh, almost almost 30 years, 28 years in this in this cell. Um, but he decided, he became a light and a beacon to his fellow inmates, to the guards. He talked the warden into letting him start a book club in prison in, in uh, death row to help them escape from their surroundings. And he began living in crescendo and he slowly exercised that the power of choice by, by what he could control and how he could influence others until he had great influence in the prison and finally attracted the attention of Brian Stevenson, who is the, um, the lawyer and advocate for those who have been wrongly convicted. I don't know if you've seen the movie Just Mercy or read the book Just Mercy, right. but it's an incredible story. But so Brian Stevenson takes his case. He finally gets some, some decent legal help and takes it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States through appeals, and they obviously throw it out and just see that it was a sham. And so after after you know 28 years, you know 28 29 years, he is comes out of prison and he walks out and he's speaking to the reporters and his friends and family, and the first thing he says is the sun does shine. And that became uh, the title of a best-selling book, New York Times best-selling book that he wrote four years later. And he, he is living in crescendo. He said, they took my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, but what they couldn't take was my joy. And so he is now an author, an advocate. He works with Brian Stevenson. He travels to the United States. He helps people that are unjustly convicted like he was. And his most important work has, has truly been ahead of him. And what an example of choosing, of, of being in diminuendo, maybe the lowest place in the, in the, in the U.S. In, on death row and coming out, um, you know, living in crescendo and being an example and an advocate and a mentor to thousands of people across the United States and the world. His example is very inspiring to me. Oh, that is an amazing story. And, and, uh, you know, I love the detail that you shared there because that, that is, it, it's tragic how often that has happened and is, is continuing yes. to happen. Uh, but it's, it's a great story and it's a good segue, 
uh, into let's take our uh, commercial break here real quick. Let's get some bills paid and uh, we'll, we'll build on that on the other side of the commercial break. How does that sound? That's great. Thanks, Earl. Uh, yeah. All right, folks, here we go to commercial and we'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right, folks, here we are back uh, from the commercial break with Cynthia Covey uh, Haller. And um, wow, uh, before the break, she shared a great story about a gentleman who was uh, wrongfully imprisoned and how he had a dark moment and came to a kind of realization about he could only control what he could control. And what, what I love about that, and I know my listeners have heard me talk about this before, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, Cynthia, but uh, there's a lot of great, uh, there's a couple great books out there. Um, I had a guest on like episode four, Colonel Lee Ellis was a uh, prisoner at the Hanoi Hilton and uh, they talked about stoic philosophy. And that was kind of what you were talking about. There was only, you know, you can only control what you can control. You can't control everything else and how that mindset helped them you know, being tortured, all the things that happened there, but it helped them survive and it helped them have the lowest uh, percentage wise, lowest PTSD rates of any of the Vietnam soldier population, even though they were in arguably some of the, the harshest environments right there. Wow. That's um, like a great, what would you say that book is called? Uh, Colonel Ellis's book is called lead with honor. Lead with honor. Huh? And I want to say the other book is called Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Uh-huh. Um, but it, again, it, it, it jives very well with that story because, uh, you know, there's there's one of the Stoic philosophers, Epictetus. He says, uh, men, uh, men are disturbed not by things, but the view of which they take of them. And, uh-huh. and, and I love that because it's so true, right? I mean, he, he, nothing really changed about the gentleman's situation that you were talking about there. Right other than his mindset and what he could do with it. And, right. and, and I, and I love that that story is, is uh, you know, out there in the book because I think a lot of us are facing similar mindset, but probably a lot better situation. We just got to get into that frame of mind. And, and this book does a pretty good job of kind of helping people, as we talked about before, kind of get into that frame of mind. And, and uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, my father always said that if you want to make small changes in your life, work on your attitude. But if you want to make big and primary changes, work on your paradigm. And mm. so this crescendo um, mentality paradigm, say that we would take the first stage that I talk about, uh, the midlife. Um, there's two perspectives in that. Sometimes we don't think we're successful because we compare ourselves to how the society and the world define success. 
Mm-hmm. And that is um, what he would he would call um, secondary greatness, fame and prominence and money and things. But but primary greatness is your character and your um, what you believe and your values. And so maybe maybe you're more successful than you realize you really are. Like the story I told about George Bailey. Everyone knows the story of It's a Wonderful Life. Well, he thought he was a failure because he never left Bedford Falls and never did anything big like he wanted to. But, you know, ultimately it came it came around when when he wasn't in their life that the town people were in trouble and that he had touched so many lives and blessed so many people through his simple acts of kindness and service that he was successful, incredibly successful. And so, um, you know, uh, in this book, um, Live Life in Crescendo, my father is um, saying that it's important to be successful in your most important roles in life. And that that's true success being successful um, as a as a business partner, being honest and having integrity, being successful as a father or a mother or a son or daughter or an aunt and uncle, uh, realizing the role that you play in your family and being as successful in that role, um, being successful in being a humanitarian and working in your community when you see needs and, and problems um, that you would reach out and respond to those. And so that's how he's defining success, being successful in your most important roles. And then the second perspective in midlife, if maybe um, you are going through a divorce or your business is failing or you hate your job and don't feel fulfilled, then you have to take, you have to take what he calls R&I, resourcefulness and initiative. And you've got to make it happen. You've got to take control of your life and think, yeah, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to start a new job or I'm going to improve this damaged relationship or I'm going to, um, you know, go back to school and recreate what I, what I, where I see myself going. So sometimes you do have to act and pivot and change and, and make things better. If you feel like, no, I really, I really can do better than this. And that takes a lot of courage. Um, I'm thinking of a man who his business failed. He, he started the business and like 15 years later, his partners pushed him out somehow. And he finds himself at 47, unemployed with four kids and doesn't have an occupation. And he um, had the courage and vision to, to, he always wanted to go to law school so he starts law school at 47, the oldest person wow. in his class by far. And he tells of one morning coming into the parking lot um, at like five in the morning in the middle of winter. And it's freezing and icy and dark and gloom just comes over him. And he just thinks to himself, thinking of all the years ahead of him, he thinks, what have I done? And how can I, how can I do this? And he decides, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live in crescendo. He basically decides, I'm no matter what it takes, I'm gonna go for this goal. I've got to make it work. And he pushes those doubts and fears aside and goes year round for the next two and a half years. Graduates from law school early in two and a half years rather than than longer. And um, st- at 49, sets up his own law practice, and within a year and a half, has more business than he can handle. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to do. It's not an easy thing, but sometimes we need to uh, examine where we are, use our R&I resourcefulness and initiative. And as my father would just 
plainly say, make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. There was so much there. And, and, and um, you know, I kind of want to go back to the It's a Wonderful Life thing there, because I love that you included that. Uh, but there was another kind of incident you asked me um, at the beginning of, you know, who was my influence. And it was one of those things when I say my grandfather, I always look back and there's things that he would say, you know, kind of almost offhand that I don't know if, if they really made sense to him at the time. I'd like to think that they did. But in retrospect, they were brilliant. Right. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I've, I've told the story on here before. So some of my listeners are maybe familiar with it. But when, when we were younger. So for those who aren't familiar, my parents split when I was young. Uh, my mom had her issues. My dad kind of was in the Air Force and moved around. Um, so I never really saw him. So my grandfather was my father figure growing up. My grandmother was my mother figure growing up. They pretty much raised me. Yeah. We were out at a, a park somewhere and there was a statue of, I, I still don't know who the statue was of, uh, but I asked my grandfather, I was like, you know, I'm from the South. We call him Papa. I said, Papa, uh, wh why did they build a statue for this guy? And, uh, you know, he looked at it and there was no little plate on there. And he goes, I don't know. It's a good question. And then as we're walking away, he, he kind of almost muttered, he goes, you know, when I die, I'd rather have people asking why they didn't build a statue in my honor than asking why they did. <laughs> yeah. <That's laughs> and crazy. I'm sitting there like, yeah. And like, you know, years down the road, I'm sitting there thinking like, that's, that's again, what we're talking here. We're talking about, you know, expanding your circle of influence and things like that. And, and, you know, having people be able to, to uh, want to see you honored and remembered and your legacy carry on after you're gone you know, that's, that's a real noble goal, a noble purpose to, to as you, uh, the words you use there, you know, touch people's lives, make them better, build that influence. And, you know, that's really kind of how I try to live my life. I don't always succeed when nobody's perfect, but that that's my goal in life is to try to help people grow. And now that I've got some new words, live in crescendo instead of diminuendo. So, uh, again, thanks for writing a book. You've expanded my vocabulary, if nothing else. Well, that's that's um, you're right, Earl. That the greatest monument is is not in the statues and things. It's what you've done in the lives of others. Right. And uh, my father's grandfather influenced him greatly by by saying life, teaching him life is a mission, not a career. Right. And that meant that you know you're you're going to have jobs and careers come and go, but what is your unique mission what are you here for what what are you good at what talents can you use to help and bless other people that are around you and uh victor frankel who was one of my father's um kind of heroes and mentors um that he observed from afar um taught that you don't invent your missions you detect them you detect them in, within yourself through your conscience through you know, you know what you feel passionate about, what touches you, where you should help. And so one of the challenges in this book is to find your unique mission, what you're, you use the talents that you have. You don't have to be extraordinary to, to do extraordinary things. You can be very ordinary. And the mission statement of this book is a, is a, is a, phrased by um, Pablo Picasso, uh, surprisingly, but he, he wrote that the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Mm. And, that, and that's one of, that's a, a way that people live in crescendo and get out of being stagnant and, and um, you know, 
uh, moving forward and doing things is they decide to live outside themselves and they uh, contribute to the lives of others uh, through, through responsible leadership, like you're talking about in your podcast, through mentoring. Uh, we, me- we remember um, Joe Wooden, who was known for, you know, mentoring. But before that, he was one of the greatest coaches of, of all time. Um, but his, he felt his most important work was still ahead of him when he, when he stopped coaching. I mean, the last third of his life, he wrote over 20 books and he spoke constantly and he uh, mentored young men, which he did his entire life. And he said, mentoring is why we get up in the morning. It's, it's a purpose. It's the reason why we're here that you've, you've learned, you've everything you've learned, you've learned from someone else. And so if you can be a, a mentor, if you can be an example to someone, and if you can look around you and um, with your unique mission in mind that you've detected within yourself, figure out how can I how can I serve? How can I help? Maybe it's in the schools that are overcrowded, and you could help with with reading, or maybe it's um, like I said with a, with a grandchild that's struggling. Maybe you're blessed with money and you're able to donate um, a lot of money toward a great cause like Michael J. Fox did, you know, here's Michael J. Fox, who in his twenties is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, you know, which wasn't really well known in those times. And he, by his own admission said, he tried to drink his way out of it. He was in denial and just couldn't believe this was happening to him. And then realized the only choice I, I, that I don't have is whether I have Parkinson's or not. And the rest is all up to me. And here uh, you would say his greatest work here, he, he had reached a pinnacle of success, being a fantastic actor and, and had a great career. But yet his most important work was definitely ahead of him, becoming the face of Parkinson's. And um, he's raised $1 billion, if you can imagine, for yeah. Parkinson's, for awareness and had the guts to go in front of uh, Congress and testify be- before a subcommittee hearing. Um, without his medication to show what it is like for people that can't afford their medication to be able to function and how, what it was like for them. And uh, so they could see him, you know, jerking and struggling and all the things that happened with Parkinson's. But um, you know, you, you don't, like I say, my, my book is full of uh, inspiring examples of famous and non-famous people that aren't known at all, who just start where they are and just try to make a difference in the lives of those around them. And pretty soon their circle of influence expands and they will leave that legacy that you're talking about that your grandfather left for you. Yeah. Oh, and again, uh, I love everything you just said there because I mean, you know, as, as you were talking, the thing that was going through my mind and, and, you know, I'm, I'm uh, hoping my listeners kind of really absorb that, but it's, it's, you know, you, you talked about, you know, finding your why and, and detecting your purpose. And, and we got so many people who believe that that purpose or that why has to be, you know, I want to be a fortune 500 CEO, or I want to be a, a multimillionaire, or I want to be this, I want to be that. And as you were talking, it, it reminded me of, uh, you know, the old Martin Luther King Jr. piece where, you know, he says, uh, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets, even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should see, uh, he should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. That's true. That's awesome. And, and, 
and I think that's the thing, right? Is is people are uh, well? I'm, I'm, I want to ask this as a question with your experiences working with folks. I think people, you know, yeah, okay, a street sweeper is not really a thing anymore. We've got trucks that do that, but we see news articles all the time of of people who you know drive garbage trucks and they've make an, an impact on some kid's life and and kids get depressed like when that person's not there on their route and we have these feel good stories but you know some people feel less than because oh well my calling is to be a garbage truck driver but still you know that's a fulfilling life that's a life in crescendo if you're filling your calling and you're doing the best at it and you love it and you're having that impact on others, right? That's true. Um, I love this quote by Theodore Roosevelt who said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Yes. And I've got a lot of stories of ordinary people um, that um, this this homeless advocate was speaking to a group of of people and saying about how how important it is to serve and to reach out. And a woman in her 80s raised her hand and said, you say everyone can make a difference or one person can, but I don't believe you. I mean, I'm in my 80s. I can't get out. I have a limited income. How could I possibly make a difference to another person? And she said, could you donate a can of soup once a week to the food bank? And she said, yes, I can do that. She said, okay, imagine thinking of a mother, a single mother that has three hungry kids that she's warming up that can of soup so that her children don't go to bed at night hungry. Do you think that would make a difference to them? And mm-hmm. she realized it would. And she, so she did. The rest of, you know, however long she lived, she donated one can of soup every week and ultimately served hundreds of people with that great hundreds of meals with that one contribution. Um, another another man um, was known as the bike man in town. And when he passed away, all the kids rode their bikes that he had fixed up and, and uh, given to them. He thought every kid should have a bike that wanted one. And so if they couldn't afford one, he would find one. He would fix up an old one or somehow get don- donations and make sure every child in town had a bike. And the great tribute to his life, the legacy was outside the church, all the bikes that were that were leaned against the, the brick wall um, as a testimony and a tribute to this man, the bike man, that one bike at a time and one kid at a time, he made a difference. And so, you know, there's lots of stories. People could, you could, um, you can look around and everybody knows somebody that's made a difference in their life without spending a lot of money or, or you know, having been particularly talented but it meant something to somebody else and impacted them. And I'm thinking of one of the, um, there's one of the sections in the book is about pinnacle of success, that sometimes you have a tendency, if you reach the pinnacle of success to coast after, to think, you know, been there, done that. I've made my money. I've made my fortune or I'm, I'm successful. I've kind of arrived. And then, you know, taking rotten advice and going to Florida and just retiring and doing nothing, (laughs) not contributing anymore. You know, you don't have to keep working in your job, but my father taught it's a false paradigm to say you either have to work, keep working or retire. He said, the third alternative is make a contribution, make a contribution, which you can do in either of those. And so I'm telling you about one man whose name is Mike Mason, 63 year old man from Virginia 
He served his country. He was a captain in the Marines. And then he went into the FBI and worked his way up to be the number four man in the FBI and um, did a great job there, um, sometimes speaking on TV, representing the, the, uh, the FBI. And then um, when he retired from that, he became an executive in a Fortune 100 company. And then he he retired and he said, I became the COO of a rocking chair, <laughs> which he <laughs> hated. And he said, you know, this just doesn't sit well. I still have a mind. I still have things to do. And so he looked around. He said, whatever it is, um, it's got to be worth my time and my effort. And so he, he said um, he looked around and he saw in his school district that they were down. Chesterfield County School District was down 125 school bus drivers and they were reporting all these shortages. And so he applied to drive a bus. <laughs> and and he, he got called from like someone up high in the, in the school district that said, um, you're really serious about this? You're the most overqualified school driver probably in America. And we'd love to give you this job, but it did, you know, is this intentional? And he said, we've got to get past the idea that there are no unimportant jobs, kind of like your quote you were talking about. He said, what could be more important than the attention we pay in our education system? So I continue to advance in my career. That's how he looked at it. He's not like, I didn't get demoted. I'm driving a school bus. I continue to advance in my career. I'm serving the, the children in our school district. And what could be more important than education? And so talk about a great leadership example, yeah. <laughs> this, this, this man, Mike Mason, um, who is advancing his career by serving the children um, in Chesterfield uh, after being in the FBI and a CEO. And now he's, he's happily content serving where he is right now in the school district. No, I, I love it. it. It reminded me of the old NASA, I'll call it a legend. I don't know if it actually happened or if it's one of those stories that, that you know, somebody cooked up to make you feel good. But the, the point is still the same. When, you know, in the early days of NASA, somebody asked a janitor what, what they did. And, and his response was, uh, I'm helping put somebody on the moon. Yeah, it's true. You're all a part of it. Every person is <laughs> yeah. a part of it. No, no, it's uh, oh, man, Cynthia, this has been a fantastic conversation. I had to glance up here at the clock and uh, we're, we're coming up on on pretty close to 44, 45 minutes here. I told and you, this I'm is, not Southern, but I'm a talker too. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. I love it. I think we probably got like about 40 shows here if we, we really put our mind to it. But I want to be mindful of, of your time and our listeners time here. Um but, you know, I want to ask you the question I ask, you know, all my guests towards the end here is, you know, we've talked about a lot of things here, and I really think we've done a good job of, of pushing uh, folks towards, because if you haven't already, folks, I highly recommend you go buy a copy of Live Life in Crescendo, Your Most Important Work is Always Ahead of You, by Stephen R. Covey and Cynthia Covey uh, Howler. But, Cynthia... We covered a lot of grounds. You shared some fantastic stories. Is there anything you want to leave listeners with right now before we work on closing out? Um, if I could leave uh, three challenges, that, that would be great. And what it, one is, the first is, whatever age or stage of life you're in, to consciously choose to live in crescendo. And um, as opposed to diminuendo and be aware of, okay, is this, is this leaning toward crescendo or diminuendo? You have the choice to make to um, which way you're going to go. And secondly, um, 
to, to have the hope, I challenge you to have the hope that when you do have a midlife struggle or you've reached the pinnacle of success or faced a life-challenging setback that we didn't even talk about, um, a lot of the book talks about life-changing setbacks, or in your later years of life as you start getting older, to truly believe that um, you, you still have important work ahead of you. It's still to come and important contributions to make. And then third, just the challenge that we hope that that um, we have inspired uh, you to believe that life is about contribution, not accumulation. And as you look around and see the needs of others and uh, realize what you can do, your unique mission, how you can help, that your life is a mission, not a career, and jump in and and love to serve where you are with just with whatever you have is enough to influence and impact another person positively for good. So those would be my, my first, my, my challenges to choose and to hope and to inspire. I love that. Those are, those are great, great challenges. Um, before, before we really do close out here, I kind of want to touch on something that is, it's at the end of the book, uh, the, the, uh, Bridal Up Hope, the Rachel Covey Foundation. Can you take just a couple of minutes and and talk about that for the listeners? Yes, that was um, at the end of the book. I tell our family's journey in li- trying to live in crescendo because we're a normal family. <laughs> you know, some people think, oh, they don't have hard things happen to them, and every family has problems. Every family struggles and has setbacks. And I tell about three of ours, and the last one involved my brother Sean, whose whose daughter Rachel passed away from the effects of depression at the age of 21, his oldest daughter. Mm. And so, um, you know, they were naturally devastated. And Sean realized, I've got three choices. I I can let it define me. I can let it destroy me. Or I can let it strengthen me. And he decided, I'm going to let this strengthen us. Someone told him that with Rachel's passing, he'd always have a hole in his heart. And he decided, no, I'm not going to have a big hole, a gaping hole in my heart. I'm going to grow a muscle there. And so mm. they, they decided to start this foundation, a nonprofit called Bridal Up Hope, because they, um, after Rachel passed, um, some friends came and said, because Ra- Rachel loved horses and she found her voice kind of when she was writing. And, and, and her friends said, you know, when I was depressed and felt down, Rachel would take me writing and it helped me so much. And they hadn't known that. And so they, they, they decided to start this foundation that combines three elements. The first is equestrian training. There's a lot of power and healing with horses and uh, for, for young girls from 12 to 18. And then also for, for, let's see, 12 to 21. And then from 22 up for, for women that are specifically for, for women and girls. And so the equestrian training, they go through these classes. The second part is they combined it with some life skills. Uh, they teach the seven habits of highly effective teens, which is my, my, my brother Sean took my dad's material for seven habits of highly effective people and, and put it toward, toward teenagers. And so they learn some life skills while they're riding these horses and learning how to control and handle a horse. And there's a lot of comparisons and life, life learnings that, that go between those two. And then the third is uh, service. They ask them to give service at the barn through mucking out up a stall, through, you know, taking care of the saddles, through working, through even doing yoga and art classes and, and serving and helping others. And so those three things have been really uh, transforming in the lives of, 
a thousand girls have gone through the program in the last mm -hmm. 10 years since Rachel passed. And 93% of the parents have said that it's been life-changing for their daughter. And it's because they are focusing on, on um, teaching fundamental principles that they can apply to their lives through this sequestering training. And so it's been a blessing. He's taken the hardest thing that could ever happen to a family and blessed thousands of, of people because of it. And it's still ongoing. And, uh, you know, if anyone's interested in that, you can look up bridaluphope.org. But it's an, an inspiring nonprofit. That's our family's oh. charity. I love that. That is, that is a, uh, you know, a great story. And thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing the the link. We'll make sure that gets in the show notes there so people can just click on it. And on that note, if people want to find out more about you, uh, your work, what you're doing, find out more about the book and all that, uh, where's a good place that they can do that, Cynthia? Um, you know, the book is just on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. Um, and the, I'm, I'm at LinkedIn. I mostly do LinkedIn or Instagram under Cynthia Covey Heller. And so, um, that'd be great. I'd love to connect. And, and I hope that this, um, material could, um, inspire and help you and your families to, um, reach your potential and, and to be able to affect other people for good as you integrate it in your lives. So thank you so much for having me on the show, Earl. I sure appreciate it. Oh, it has been my honor and, and listeners again, go grab a copy, live life in crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. Uh, there's a lot of great lessons in here. A lot of great stories. We didn't even scratch the surface. I promise you there's so much more content in here. Uh, Cynthia, again, thank you for, for your work. Thank you for finishing the book and, and getting that out there and putting it together. I had, uh, to, I live think in, I had to live in crescendo to finish the book. <laughs> I, I'm 65. And so it took 10 years. It was a long journey. So I, I had to practice what I was preaching. <laughs> <laughs> there, well, and I'm glad you did. The world's better off for having this book in it. And, and again, thank you for finishing it. Thank you for writing the book. And, uh, you know, thank you for being a great guest here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. It has been a blast. I know my listeners have enjoyed you sharing it. And just thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thanks again, Earl. I appreciate you having me. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul, 
I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today.